You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. I hope you're feeling well. It's wild and woolly weather out there. It's hot, but it's windy. And we all know what it's like in Melbourne when it's windy. They say, gale force winds. So just be careful. All those very slight, thin people, make sure that you stay inside or you'll be thrown around by, like, autumn leaves, I'll have to say. It's very, very windy. Today's program, we're going to talk to Fred Skepsy, the um, uh, absolutely iconic uh, Australian film director, uh, because uh, his uh, first film, The Devil's Playground, is going to be part of a season of films at the Capitol in the middle of the city called The Best Films You've Never Seen. Uh, I got a chance to talk to him a little bit about a variety of things, and not just the film. Uh, we're going to go on and talk to Alan Griffith. He's a, a peace activist and also a composer from uh, Brunswick. He's got a major piece being uh, uh, performed at uh, St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne on the 25th of November, 7.30pm, and he's going to come in and talk to us about what it's all about and what inspired it. Uh, Kevin's in form. This is the week that was. Uh, on Monday is the uh, first court hearing for uh, David McBride, the whistleblower who brought to the attention of the Australian population that uh, our uh, a, a group of uh, army people in Afghanistan wearing the ADF badge were committing war crimes. And uh, he's the one who's going to uh, court. <laughs> anyway, uh, on um, yesterday there was a uh, webinar from the Australia Institute where there was a discussion about uh, uh, which put truth on trial. And uh, there's a very small excerpt from that to give you an understanding of what's going on. And if you're in Canberra, what you can do about it uh, personally uh, on Monday. Uh, but, uh, of course, you can go and hear the entire piece, which is uh, much more fulsome, on the uh, Australia Institute website where they'll put the whole webinar there. This is only a very small uh, taster so that you can uh, get it on your calendar. That This is really important issue, uh, what's going on with whistleblowers in the Australian community. And we finish up with a... Uh, uh, some speeches from the Sydney uh, uh, Solidarity uh, Pol- Palestinian Solidarity Rally uh, on the 3rd of November uh, uh, and uh, a reminder that there is a 
rally for Palestine on Sunday here at, at 12 p.m. Uh, outside the State Library. Uh, but before we get on to all that, I've got a c- couple of news items. We have to congratulate uh, Mary Beck Council because uh, they did pass their motion to raise the uh, uh, Palestinian flag, uh, and they went further than that. It uh, became a much more um, rousing endorsement on su- of support for the Palestinian people. Uh, it was interesting because uh, the Channel 7 mid-afternoon news led with council accused of being anti-Semitic. So uh, the right-wing media in particular, uh, Sky News and other outlets of that sort, went crazy, crazy with uh, the idea that anybody should be in support of the Palestinian people who are being pummeled. Um, But good on Mary Beck Council. I saw Sue Bolton last night at the Green Left Comedy Review and uh, she was in particular very happy. She's indefatigable and uh, there's ongoing protests and solidarity support. There's going to be, uh, you should go to the Green Left's uh, calendar to get an update as well as uh, um, there's a variety of other um, places that you can go to get more information, including Palestine Remembered, which uh, follows up after Asia-Pacific Currents on this particular radio station this morning. Uh, There's uh, another piece of good news in relation to uh, this. Activists claim victory as RMIT ends Albert Partnership. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, went down to the um, speak out and protest uh, outside uh, RMIT telling it to uh, desist its partnership with Alberts. Um, Activists are celebrating an announcement by RMIT that it has ceased its research partnership with Israel's largest weapons manufacturer, Albert Systems, which develops tests and provides weapons and drones to the Israeli military for use against Palestinians. This victory comes just over a year after RMIT was targeted by BDS Australia due to its advertised partnership with Albert Systems in the development of AI systems. In 2022, Palestine's largest academic and tertiary union, PFUUPE, that's very pithy, isn't it? Representing over 6,000 academic and staff wrote to RMIT and urged it to suspend all collaboration with Albert Systems. Subsequently, staff and students held on-campus protests and speakouts. RMIT did not respond to any of this representation nor to the large online petition with 2,000 signatures calling for an end to all ties with Albert Systems. Throughout 2023, two Melbourne activists, Shane McCartan and Mark Bradbeer, took the campaign to RMIT's doorstep and for eight and a half months picketed, uh, increased uh, people's awareness of what was going on. At first, many students and staff we spoke to knew nothing about Albert Systems or its relationship with RMIT, said Mark. It was slow work, but our support grew steadily. The campaign received a boost when uh, Anthony Lowenstein announced the RMIT Albert Partnership. If your partner, if you partner as a state or a university with a company like Albert, you have blood on your hands because the record of Albert is in Israel Palestine on the US 
Mexican border and elsewhere is so damned clear, said Lowenstein. So RMIT needs to answer very serious questions about it and actually feel pressure about it, a lot of pressure. Uh, in response to the protest that was held on the 19th of October, RMIT released a statement that it no longer has any partnerships with Albert Systems or Albert Systems of Australia. When clarification was sought, RMIT confirmed that their planned partnership with Albert Systems was terminated and that they have no relationship with the company or any of its subsidiaries. I must say, reading that now, I'd I'd look very carefully and see if there's been a name change, because um, that is something that they might say, oh, we've got nothing to do with these people, but then it's because Albert Systems has actually changed its name. But anyway, it's um, a step in the right direction. Um, the other thing that was uh, particularly fantastic, at the end of... Uh, the day yesterday I received a media release. It was from Slater and Gordon. And this is related to the indefinite detention of refugees. Um, this is just an astounding thing that's happened. Slater and Gordon says High Court decision may be an opportunity for asylum seekers to obtain justice over indefinite detention. Um, they welcomed a landmark decision handed down in the High Court that rules indefinite immigration is unlawful, which overturns a 20-year precedent. This is unbelievable. The precedent was established in the case of Al Kate versus Goodwin, where the High Court found that sections of the Migration Act, which has previously been interpreted to organise indefinite detention of stateless people and non-citizens, even in circumstances where it is impossible to deport the individual, go beyond the Commonwealth's legislative power. Bravo. While the High Court's reason for decisions are yet to be released, Slayton Gordon's class action associate, Laura Ningro, said it may provide an avenue for other people who have been incorrectly detained by the Commonwealth indefinitely to seek redress for their unlawful imprisonment. Uh, Slater and Gordon is representing Mr L. Cutton in a claim relating to his treatment in immigration detention in South Australia. The stateless Palestinian man, who was born in Kuwait, arrived in Australia in 2000. He has no criminal history or convictions, and in 20. the High Court determined that the Commonwealth was able to detain him in immigration detention indefinitely as there was no other country willing to accept him. Mr Al-Khatun welcomed the High Court's decision. This is a life-changing decision for those people being held in indefinite detention. I can imagine how overwhelming they they must be by this news, he said. It's amazing. Uh, Slater and Gordon in 2017 reached a $90 million settlement with the Commonwealth in the landmark Manus Island detainee class action. At the time, it was said to be the largest human rights settlement in Australian legal history. So there we go. Uh, We hopefully will be able to hear more about that from... um, uh, Laura Ningro, but uh, later on and after they've been able to read the actual adjudication to see what was actually said 
and uh, how they actually related to that particular thing. The other thing I should tell you before we get on to important other things is that there is a rally for renters 1pm today at the corner of Smith and Gertrude Street. There will be speakers, including Adam Bant and Gabrielle de Vitry. Uh, uh, there's going to be a renters open mic. The renters and housing union are going to be there. And of course, the Victorian socialists. And you. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Here with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, as I said, we're going to be talking to uh, Fred Skepsi. I had a chat with Fred Skepsi, the um, uh, very important Australian uh, film director. His first film, which was A Devil's Playground, it put out in 1976, uh, was um, a, bra- a breakthrough film and uh, it's going to be shown as part of a series of films called The Best Films You've Never Seen which is going to be on at the fabulous Capital Theatre which is just across the road from the Town Hall in Melbourne with a ce- celebration of two decades of preserving and exploring the rich history of Australian cinema. Dave, uh, the uh, RMIT Union has got the AFI Research Collection um, which is pretty impressive, and um, for the past twenty years, and this uh, they're going to um, be uh, giving the public a entree into this. And the other thing that's pretty amazing about this particular uh, series of films, uh, the best films you've never seen, is that uh, that are running that have been running since the twenty first of February, but are going to go from to the fifth of September. They're $5 and $10, so it's the old cinema prices in a most fabulous setting. Um, This particular screening is going to be on at November the 14th, that's Tuesday, next Tuesday at 6pm, and um, Fred Skepsi is going to be there. But one of the things about having a chat with Fred Skepsi, which was important to me, is it takes us back to that period in Australian cultural history where... Uh, everything was brought in from overseas. It was like takeaway culture. And uh, in the 70s was the fight back from the locally grown artists and others. And Australia's that we're living in now is built on. So I had a chat with Fred Skepsi and this is what he was talking about. Of course, I'm talking to you because... uh the Capitol are going to be running some films which they call the best films you've never seen. And uh, (laughs) that's what they're calling it. And uh, the film that they're showing is The Devil's Playground, which is your first film. Correct, yes. Yeah, and I really wanted to know, 
I really want to know how you had the audacity in 1971 to make a feature film in the first place in the Australian context. Well, it took me five years to get to make it. Um, I was uh, running a film company called The Film House and uh, I wanted to make feature films and um, I was trying to think of what to make it about and I suddenly thought, well, you know, the monastery is something a world that people know nothing about uh, and you get all kinds of personalities in there plus you get uh, the kids who are training to become Morris Brothers and their complexity and puberty and all that stuff and then you see what they might become and I just thought, wow, that'd be a good film to make. So I set about writing it thinking I'd make it next week, and it took five years. (laughs) Well, in that period of time, there was a pretty strong um, culture uh, cringe in Australia, you know, but also uh, this burgeoning belief, self-belief, that we could do things. Um, You were part of that wave. Uh, Yeah. Uh, In Victoria, there were quite a few of us, uh, and there were some in uh, New South Wales as well. Uh, and at that time, uh, the in Directors Guild of Victoria to run an experiment which ended up as a, uh, as a film called Libido based in four parts, uh, one of which was mine called The Priest. So we were starting to find ways to get to make stuff, you know. Uh, and... Uh, fortunately, um, we, we were able to find from the uh, federal government uh, some money, but most of the money was mine and friends of mine and clients of mine. But it just took a while. Yeah, right. I mean, you started off uh, making money as a, um advertising person, didn't you? Correct, yep. Yeah. I started in an advertising agency, and then I then I went into a film company, and uh, uh, yeah. So, what was the uh, what was the seduction about film? Look, uh, when I was fifteen, I started going to see what we laughingly called continental films in those days. Uh, at fifteen, I think I was going for the wrong reasons. I thought I'd see a bit of sex and a bit of nudity, uh, which at that uh, stage in Australia would have been rare. But what I found was these wonderful films about worlds I knew nothing about, uh, subjects I wouldn't have thought of, plus you always found something of yourself in there to identify with, that the world's not that different. Uh, in many ways, so I just became, uh, I guess, obsessed uh, with wanting to contribute to that. And that's, you know, that's part of why I chose uh, Devil's Playground the way I did. So, um, yeah. Are you from a Catholic background then? Ah, uh, yes, I went to boarding school from the age of eight. Yeah, right. Oh. And You're a lucky but, boy. But Devil's <laughs> Yeah, not that lucky. But uh, then I went to the monastery when I was 13, so Devil's Playground is uh, 
uh, we like to say, semi-autobiographical. It is a very uh, seductive idea to try and uh, uh, put into a creative form things that you've learned in your own life. But actually, it's a much harder proposition, isn't it? What did you find when you were writing the script? Uh, no, I just tried to see the complexity of it all. Um, and, and being that age and being sort of taken out of the real world, um, so that, uh, and, and forced into a kind of, uh, purity situation where, you know, they were making you shower behind, uh, shower with your togs on. You know, yeah, yeah. get undressed behind dressing gowns and stuff. And all this did was just create a really perverted kind of attitude to things. Uh, and I'd come from boarding school, and, you know, as I said, at the age of eight, you know, you never did any of that at boarding school. It didn't, didn't exist, you know. It was just somebody somebody thought that this was... Um, um, I don't know. A way yeah. to approach religion, you know, which is just uh, silly. Yeah, it's such a curious um, uh, thing to look back in time at how um, oppressive and crazy Australia was at that period that your film was made. Uh, yes. Um, you know, things were starting to open up. Things were starting to change. Uh the sexual revolution hasn't reached Australia yet, <laughs> but we were starting starting to discover the value in our own stories on stage, in music, uh, in in television, and you know. So uh, we were starting to get confidence in our in even, and in our art as well. Uh, it all coincided. Um, which I thought was, and in fashion, you know, um, it, it wasn't it wasn't in isolation, but it, but it, but it was a sweeping change. And even in advertising, instead of having to imitate American commercials or English commercials, we were starting to speak to people in our own language, you know, and appeal to what appeals to us, you know. So. Uh, it was a whole movement, really. Well, were you really surprised at uh, the effect that your film had? Um, because it won an AFI award, didn't it? Yep. Won a few, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, yeah, no, I was pleased. I was excited. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I had to distribute it myself. I had to uh, got help from Philip Adams and introduced me to uh, some theatre owners. So uh, I wasn't going through distributors. We were distributing it, and then it cost me as much again to distribute that uh, as it did to make it. So, oh my God! Um, yeah. Uh, so I was working very hard day and night commercials to pay for it. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, you know, the film itself has uh, does doff its hat to those films that you saw, those continental films, doesn't it? Tell us about the... Um, I mean, it's all very well to say you're going to make a film, but lots of people make bad films. Do you have to have 
a sense of uh, what you're shooting and the pacing that you're going to shoot it in and how you're going to edit it and what you want to say in those forms. Uh, tell me about what you were doing when you were making that film. Uh, one of the things I did, and this started when we were trying to work out how much it might cost us. Uh, and I, and I looked at, uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but there were two or three films. Uh, one of them was English. Uh, one of them was probably Italian or French. And what I did was I ran it. I didn't have the ability to sort of stop and start, but I ran it and ran it and ran it. Uh, and I looked at the cuts. So the and I realized, oh, okay, that, 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 and that, that's actually all one scene in one location. Uh, and I picked films that were of the sort of size and complexity that I thought ours would be. So uh, I broke it down entirely into how many shots they would have done, how long it might have taken, uh, all of that. It wasn't so much imitating what they were doing or anything like that but was just getting a sense of structure at that point so i could cost it right yeah but in of course in doing that i learned some quite a few things that i hoped to ignore <laughs> and go past you know um and by that i mean i didn't i didn't want to uh, do the conventional cutting system i didn't want to do the uh, your close-up, my close-up, your close-up, my close-up, yeah, wide yeah. shot, medium shot. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to invent my own language. And with the help of Ian Baker, my cinematographer, uh, you know, we we sort of uh, worked out that no movement unless it was motivated by someone or something in the story. Yeah, right. Uh, that everything was in the service of the story, how to put across best all the things we needed to. And Brian Kavanagh was our editor. You know, he was helping us in that too. Um, and so the camera only moves when it's following someone or something, you know. That, that. So we were trying to not make you conscious of the filmmaking, but put you right inside the story of it. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, that's the amazing thing. You go, I see quite a lot of films and uh, sometimes you go back and you watch films from other periods and this is the opportunity in the best films you've never seen. Uh, it's just quite remarkable how artistic films from other periods are because you get so used mm. to what the conventions of vocabulary are now, it's a bit like the lobster in the pot, really. You know what I mean? Like, it's really exciting to go back sure. and watch other films. Yeah, yeah. And also, hopefully, you do it in a way that it doesn't date. You know, a lot of English films, uh, certainly from periods past, always picked up on what the trends of the moment were. And they went even more trendy. They exaggerated those trends. So when you look at them now, they're dated. Yeah. They're extremely dated. They're curious pieces, but they are dated. You know? And very hard to watch. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't, yeah, again, I didn't want that to happen as much as possible. You know. Well, you've obviously succeeded, or they wouldn't be playing it again, right? You, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing that I'd really like to know is you've uh, succeeded in making this film 
you'd be brash enough to stand up there and say, I can make a feature film and it's Australian. Uh, and, and this is in a time when Australia didn't really have its uh, cultural voice. Um, and then it's a great success. H how did that uh, affect the sense of Australia getting its cultural voice, do you think? Uh, oh, it was one part of it. You know, you had Peter Weir making Picnic and Hanging Rock and Cars of Day Paris, and uh, you had Tim Burstall. Uh, doing his thing, uh, you know, there were, as I said before, that we were emerging in that direction, even in advertising. So it wasn't in isolation. Uh, various of us gave one another the courage to believe in ourselves and go forward. It's hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the hard part's getting the money. Yeah, well, I was just yeah. going to ask you the other question, which is it was it was in tandem with people like Philip Adams, who was canny enough to realise that legislation was required. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we went from the Experimental Film Fund to the, I think, the AFDC or something, something like that, it was called. Uh, yeah, so we got... Yeah, there was money. And I wasn't getting any, by the way. Even though I was the top in advertising and industrial documentaries and PR documentaries, for which I'd won countless awards, when I was applying, they were not going to give me any money because I hadn't done a film. Who had done a film? You know, <laughs> it was it was just weird. And somebody said to me, your problem is you're not being political. And I went, I have to play politics to get money? I didn't understand any of that. So I wised up and I sort of said to the body at the time, hey, listen, I can hit the newspapers. I can put my record out there for everybody to see. And I can say, you're not supporting me. What are the reasons I'm going to give them? You know, and uh, guess what? Suddenly I got some money. And I thought, I thought that was crap frankly, and there's still some of that going on today. They don't support people who are going to do their second or third film. They don't help develop careers. They go for just give somebody a new chance, give a new person another new person, and it's a little bit so they can kind of control it. It's just weird. I, I'm really interested in the uh, Chant of Jim, Jimmy Blacksmith because the Chant of Jimmy mm -hmm. Blacksmith was one of those films that brought Indigenous faces and uh, story to the Australian screen. I think that was probably the most shocking film for white Australia. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it's probably why they didn't go to see it at the time. Oh, really? I, I, oh, it was an, an amazing film. Yeah, yeah. Well, it did. You said it. It was. It shocked people. And in fact, uh, you know, the Herald Sun just kicked the hell out of it. Uh, first half the first page, half the, the whole of the second wow. page, and about a third of the, you know, talking about the violence and the Aborigines. Mm. And, it's uh, a true story. It's based on a true story. Time. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, it was. It was a lot to take in and confronting on many levels. And I think the opinion of it now is quite different, of course. So, 
Yeah, no. Why did you decide to make it? How did you know about that story? Uh, well, I got involved uh, with Tom Keneally uh, on when I when you know I was previously saying we did this experiment uh, of getting people to write for film but write for other media, and Tom wrote The Priest for me, which was part of the portmanteau film called Libido. And I met Tom, and he was writing it, and he told me about it at the time. And there were some images in it that just fascinated me. And I went, oh, my God, i got to read this. i got to do this. This is. I was stimulated by the possibilities. Uh, and he had other people offering him money and everything, but somehow I managed <laughs> to talk him into giving it to me for very little money. So, uh, yeah. Well, magnificent! You you did a great mm. thing by making that film. I'll have to. Say. I think that was the beginning, a, a beginning, in the um, yeah. the culture wars, as it were. Yeah, uh, it had its detractors, uh, even in the First Nations community. Although I think that's not the case anymore. And weirdly enough, and here's the really sad thing, because you know I didn't make that without advice you know, from all the right people culturally. Uh, but if I was making that today, I probably wouldn't get to make it because any funding for that money in this day and age. Unless, you know, unless there was a First Nations person directing or photographing or something, you know. Um, but, you know, sometimes you do things from when you're in your own world and you see the warp and weft and you feel it and have a different sense. Sometimes you do it from outside your world where you can see it in a different way and more objectively and probably uh, hitting on the highlights that most people don't notice when they're inside the world. But you've always got to take the advice of the people you're doing it about. I made a film in Japan based on baseball. Did I know anything about baseball? No. But did I get a hell of a lot of experts to educate me? <laughs> and then could I look at it in a, you know, yeah. And could I look at it in a fresh way that they wouldn't be able to? Yes. And we are stifling that kind of thing. Mm, interesting. That is very interesting. What did you think? Did you see the film Nightingale? Yeah, I did. What did you think? I liked it. Yeah, so did I. It was very um, freaky. Yeah, very powerful, yeah. Yeah. I liked it, yeah. No, absolutely. It was a good one. And it's like Nitran. You oh, Nitran. Nitran? Yeah, that's really, really good. What a, what a good film that is. And, of oh. course, everybody, nobody, nobody wanted to fund that bloody movie. And really? that's just wrong. That's just, yeah, because, oh, you know, you shouldn't be writing about this stuff or what. You know, why? You know? That's an incredibly important subject done incredibly well. And they were all scared of it, the funding bodies. They ran from it like crazy, you know, and they had to make the film under the most exacting circumstances. And it's just wrong. Support people. Support the good ideas, the game ideas, the ones that are going to challenge you.
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And in the studio, we have the composer of that lovely music. Uh, G'day, how are you, Alan Griffiths? I'm so happy to be here again, Annie. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and you've got a big uh, event coming up, haven't you? Well, hopefully. (laughs) Well, are you you one of those people who don't want to tempt fate? No. (laughs) (laughs) Especially with things that are going on. Uh, And uh, uh, not only are you a composer, but you're a peace activist. And this uh, particular... uh, a piece of music, the uh, such a fine sunny day, is actually uh, um, fuses the two things, doesn't it? It does. It does. I was uh, very worried uh, during the second lockdown. I knew we were going to have a war with Russia, categorically, one hundred percent. I knew it, and I didn't know what to do as an artist. How how do you react to this? And I I had heard about White Rose. They were a group of student pacifists in Munich during the 1940s under Hitler's dictatorship. And at great personal risk, they published six anonymous public letters. And I looked up those letters and I read them and it just it just came to me. It was just so obvious that what they're writing about is just as relevant as today. And I was just thinking to myself, these are people who risked everything to plead with their fellow Germans to rise up against the Nazi machine before Hitler dragged them down to hell. And I was thinking to myself, why aren't people now with democracy, with relative freedoms now, doing everything they can to stop nuclear war from happening? In August last year, the Secretary General of the United Nations stated, we are one one, uh, mistake, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And you'd think that if people were really aware of that, they'll be shouting from the rooftops to do everything possible. There are Australians who have done amazing things. There's ICANN, the International Committee Against Nuclear Weapons. This is a grassroots group started in Melbourne. They won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for spearheading the international campaign to outlaw nuclear weapons. They're now outlawed, which is remarkable. So I was just thinking to myself, well, I've written, I wrote this, I, I, I hate, talking up myself (laughs) (laughs) well that's why you're here yeah (laughs) you got to do it it's radio man yeah (laughs) yes so i wrote this great piece of music it's a song cycle which talks about uh reflects on what sophie was thinking at the time when she and her brother and close friend christopher Probst were caught by the nazis the gestapo arrested them and they were endured a horrible Nazi show trial. So it goes through her internal monologue of what was happening and it juxtaposed that against the amazing film, Sophie Shaw, The Final Hours. I recommend everybody watch that. And it brings to question, what would Sophie say now? And so I uh, managed to get the song cycle to one of the world's greatest living opera singers. I knew he was in Christchurch. He couldn't fly back to New York, right? So I managed to get it to him and I asked him, would he like to record it? And he said he'd love to. I said, well, would you like to do the world premiere? (laughs) He said, even better. If you can arrange it for this time in Christchurch for September last year, uh, I will do it. So I booked the Piano Centre for Music and Arts there. It's acoustically uh, treated concert hall, one of the best in the world. And I flew my recording producer from Sydney and the pianist Nicholas Young, who should be a household name. He's an extraordinary virtuoso, run a, won a string of international awards. I flew him from Melbourne and I had five musicians all together. None of them got sick for the concert. 
And we managed to get one of the world's largest audio tech companies to sponsor it. So they flew over the latest equipment from Switzerland, and we had arguably the best recording equipment in New Zealand for the recording. So Paul recorded it, and then we put the concert on a couple of days later, and it was very well attended. We got a standing ovation at the end. I just felt vindicated that New Zealand really was the right country to do this with their anti-nuclear stance. So now I'm bringing this concert to Melbourne in a couple of weeks at St. Paul's Cathedral, a beautiful acoustic. Hopefully the weather will be warmer now. Um, and Paul is going to be there to sing the Australian premiere. Uh, Paul will be accompanied That's by... That's Paul Whelan. Paul Whelan, Whelan yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's from New York. And this is his only concert in Australia. And this is the only time you'll get to hear him. The... Uh, Paul will be accompanied by a dramatic piano duet played by Nicholas Young and Taiwan concert pianist Mago Chen. And then there are special guests, uh, multi-award winners Chelsea Gemma Neal and Valence Dadoe Freisberg going to play some I well-received chamber music. So it's a top-class lineup, and you get you can get tickets uh, on the website suchafinesunnyday.com. I'm hoping this will inspire people to talk about the issue of uh, nuclear weapons more. It hasn't gone away. Things are terrible now. We in see fact, in it's the creeping East. up like an oh, yes. anxiety right yes. at this moment. It is. It is. It hasn't gone away. And we are at this cusp of the Albanese government has promised to sign on to the, uh, the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. He has promised to do it, but he hasn't given us the date. So now with things so critical in the Middle East, you would think people would be ringing him up and just giving the ALP hell to bloody well sign this agreement. You've promised to. But they're under a lot of pressure from the US. We uh, They've entered into this foolish agreement, the AUKUS agreement, with these nuclear submarines, which are white elephants. Like Paul Keating came out and gave us a wonderful expose on how, about terrible, how terrible it is. We don't need those weapons. We've already got uh, a central apparatus of the U.S. military and industrial complex. It's the spy base in Pine Gap. That is central to the U.S. nuclear missile defense system. We don't need anything else. Unfortunately, the Pine Gap is a nuclear target. It's been verified that during the height of the Cold War, the Soviets were very worried about it because back then they had the capacity to jam their early warning systems of you know, missiles coming in. Uh, now things are a lot more sophisticated with the nuclear weaponry. They're still testing bombs every fortnight or so. The Hiroshima was only the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT. Hiroshima is the size of Christchurch. Now the bombs they have now are of the one megaton with a blast radius of 65 kilometers. And we should be very worried about the people in our springs. They live, they live less than 15 kilometers away. And since we're so close to a nuclear war, it's all been acknowledged. The second hand of the nuclear doomsday clock is 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it has ever been. Now, surely, if we... How, does, how do you think it relates to, just as a matter of interest, Alan, uh, how do you think it relates to what's going in on at the moment in Gaza? Well, it directly relates to that because there are lots of regional powers which are very upset about what's going on. Before the Hamas attack... Uh, I like to call him Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. He uh, got up in front of the UN and showed the map of Israel. And there was no, there was no Gaza on that map. There was no West Bank, and he showed this pipeline going from Saudi Arabia all the way through where Gaza is situated, and then feeding Europe as the alternative to the uh, Beltway China's building from the largest uh, 
communication to transport from the edge of Russia all the way through China through to Europe. It's seen as the option. And I think that's the real reason. The Israel confis- it's like real estate realignment. Yes, well, it's not only that. Israel has stolen Palestine's gas fields off the coast of Gaza. They're massive. And Palestinians have a right to exploit their natural resources. I don't like fossil fuels, but for Christ's sake, if a, a country so... Um, so demeaned and so abused by the West has any right to exploit the resources. It's the Palestinian people. It's right, Israel has no right to those resources. So uh, Sophie Scholl back That's her- a very interesting um, analysis, though, what you just said. I mean, this mm. is not something that is uh, front and centre of no. any discussion no. uh, of why the um, Western powers are so... Um, I mean, that it, it just takes both It's, it's baffling. Well, NATO, their charter, well, NATO was started up to keep Russia, the USSR, out of uh, Europe. Their charter was that. After the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia came about, the Berlin Wall came down, they changed their charter to safeguard the world's, the world's energy lines. That's why NATO was involved in Afghanistan. You look up the European map, Afghanistan's not there. <laughs> <laughs> So they were involved in, in Afghanistan. Look at the disaster they left there. NATO is involved in Ukraine. And um, I have always opposed uh, arming Ukraine uh, because we're so close to nuclear war. We need peaceful negotiations there. It's, they have to, the, Ukraine's going to be destroyed now. It's an ultimate tragedy. On average, three children, Ukraine children are dying a day. These are people which the trauma will become intergenerational. And this needn't have happened. And now with uh, Russia, they have a naval base in Syria, which is on top of Israel. America has uh, voted to maintain their illegal uh, occupation of northern Syria and keep on stealing Syria's oil. This conflagration in Gaza could easily explode out. People are talking about Turkey going for Israel. There's Iran. Israel has been bending over backwards to lobby and pressure, cajole America into a war with Iran because Israel won't be able to do it. And Iran has been funding the Hezbollah. So the Hezbollah are no walkover. Uh, Israel tried to beat them down by invading Lebanon uh, some years ago. And Lebanon, uh, the Hezbollah kicked them out. They well and truly humiliated Israel. And now the Hezbollah are firing missiles into Israel over what's happening in Gaza. It's a, a monumental disaster for everyone, and it's no, it, it won't guarantee Israel any security, uh, further inflaming the hatred. Netanyahu, before the Hamas attack, he was getting European, uh, sorry, Arabian uh, Ar- uh, Muslim countries on board, and they were actually uh, ditching Palestine. They, were, they had, had enough of this, and they were getting, going to form a, uh, an economic cooperation. Saudi Arabia and Israel are getting very close. Now, after this attack, the horrific Hamas attack, I can't believe they did it. And this uh, overreach and overreaction from Israel has, it, we're seeing a uniting of the Sunni and the Shiite possibly coming together in their hatred of what Israel's doing. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, and yeah. We are, it's likely that America will have a war against the, all these other Arab countries. It's just, there's, this is an unwinnable war. It is. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that's going on at the moment. Yeah. 
Well, Sophie, back in her time in the 1940s, in one of their public letters, they denounced Hitler for the crimes against the Jews and against the Russians, which is an astonishing thing to do under the terrible dictatorship of Hitler. And here we are in a, a democracy. And up until this point before uh, this late, the, this war, Gaza was being bombed on a regular basis mm. and it didn't even, didn't even reach the media. They were the untermention of our time. And the other mention of our time, which continues, is the people caught in the crossfire in uh, Ukraine. The, the largest minority of Ukrainians are Russian ethnic-speaking Ukrainians. And they've um, suffered a terrible time since the uh, overthrow of their democratically elected government in 2014. And no one talks about it. For the first time uh, the uh, Donetsk public hospital was bombed, it was during the Civil War, which it, the President Petro Poroshenko stated on, in a documentary shot by Oliver Stone. You can see it for free on YouTube called Ukraine on Fire. He said, the IMF will not fund a country at war of itself. That's why we have started an anti-terrorist operation. So it makes it look legit, the civil war they had against this, this uh, section of Ukraine, which was rising up against them. And they bombed the public hospital. Where was the international outcry? The outcry only happened when Russia did. When Russia oh, goodness, invaded. it's like um, uh, creating a movie script so that they can get uh, particular outcomes. That's what they're doing. I mean, they call it strategy, but it's a movie script. Well, it's interesting you say that because the Western media only has access to uh, this this war of attrition, which is continuing. It's a stalemate. I know. Now that uh, what's going on in Palestine is so horrific, yes, people have, have mentioned huh, apparently everything's okay in the Ukraine. Yes, yes. Well, it's been a fantastic PR campaign managing the Western media, keeping it uh, under control. Totally uh, useless. Well, there's one journalist from CBS who tried... Well, everyone's been killed. Yes. Have you seen how many journalists have been killed? Yes, yeah, an astronomical amount, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Ukraine, the CBS tried to trace where American weaponry was going. They only found 30% reached the front line. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> that but, begs the question, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, well, criminal gangs are trying to get hold of Stinger missiles and all this weaponry, which is just, you know. And we're on the verge of war, war, warlordism. We'll have to finish here, but yeah. um, on that happy it's, note. <laughs> yes, it might, the, the song cycle is uplifting. There's a lot of love. Yes. There's a lot of nurturing. <laughs> There's, there's, I hope you like that music. There's lots more of it. You can get it tickets at suchafinesunnyday.com. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for having me, Annie. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when let's go to what we can't joke about. Zion now says it will only bomb and destroy and murder the innocents for 20 hours a day, which, with US support, calls this humanitarian. 20 hours of slaughter is humanitarian. And that presumes they'll keep their word, given people fleeing to where they were told to flee were bombed anyway. Onwards, it has been apparent for years that any criticism of Zion is deemed anti-Semitic. Any criticism of the current slaughter and destruction, anti-Semitic, when of course Semites are being slaughtered. Yes, justifiably, people are anti-Zionist, because we are anti-any philosophy based on race and religious hegemony. Now Zion and the US are discussing who governs Gaza if they leave anything left to govern. Again, perpetuating 75 years of ignoring the Palestinian people, who will yet again have 
no say. The mantra to justify all this, Zion has a right to defend itself, means Zion has a right to all the lands it has taken and continues to expand and take, and those banished from the land stolen from them have no right to resist. And the world, including True Blue Aussie, supports that. Finally, as shame rings out regularly at Sunday rallies, shame to the state premier for denouncing pro-Palestinian protesters. The ALP federal and state is being shamefully gutless. Now, normal week that was, if normal could ever apply. And can't we be proven wrong? Just when we thought the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs was the repository of the most conservative thinking, indeed calling it thinking is a major concession, just when it has come out opposing the imprisonment of non-violent criminals, or more correctly, a particular non-violent criminal. The Institute's criminal justice reform research analyst, Mia Schlicht, real name, analysed the prison reform offered former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party state poly Russell North, who has moved west to enjoy His Most Gracious Majesty's hospitality after being found guilty of ripping off the public purse to the tune of 175 grand. The cost of locking poor Russell up will cost more than the amount he ripped off, Mia pointed out. It is now taxpayers who will ultimately pay for his crimes, Mia argued. Perhaps forgetting they already have, to the tune of 175 grand. Pay, she said, thanks to the wasteful, unproductive and expensive imprisonment of people who pose a minimal physical safety threat to the community. Where has Mia been when prison reform advocates have been pointing to that wasteful, unproductive, expensive argument for years? Surely it's not that a privileged hayseed and cheap shit fraudster is involved. Where have Mia and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private been as countless of non-privileged have been slotted ad, ad infinitum ever since our mother country deported the poverty-stricken victims of its criminal injustice system in the Terranullius invasion? The newly concerned Mia must be relieved, though, that the EY partner, one of the big four global financial behemoths charged with bringing in 700000 through tax-dodging advice, is unlikely to cost the community by joining Paul Russell. We can but imagine how much tax the public purse missed out on if the fee for evading it was seven hundred grand. but Mia will also see justice in that EY itself will not be charged with any offence, because after all, the bloke they're charging was only a partner who allegedly gave his tax-dodging advice for years. But for all those years, EY had no idea, no idea at all, all this was going on. Because obviously clients of the big four and the big end of town tax lawyers consult them, pay them millions to ensure they pay as much tax as they possibly can. Which is why the government in turn seeks their advice on any proposed amendments to tax laws. Because there's no way they would recommend amendments guaranteeing they can continue to ensure their clients always meet their quote, legal tax obligations with a report this week that about 30% of good corporate citizens met their legal tax obligations by paying not one cent.
But although the report is silent on this, we can assume that if they practised being a good corporate citizen, they would have collected heaps of corporate welfare from the taxes of those who can't avoid paying them. And we're sure Mia and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Team would agree there's one non-violent criminal who should not avoid jail. In fact, he's facing life for the unpatriotic crime of exposing true blue Aussie war crime. Haven't noticed the Institute of joining the campaign to have the charges dropped, but imagine what it will cost the taxpayer to lock him up for life. But the Institute would know that's money well spent. David McBride's whistleblowing, just because his attempt to have the issues addressed through the proper channels was ignored, led to a very expensive Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission into war crimes, so he's already unnecessarily cost us heaps. OK, the commission found he was correct. True Blue Aussie trained killers had committed war crimes, so arising out of all that... It's important that someone be charged, and who better than the public servant who exposed the whole thing? Yet all those goody-goodies say the government should drop the charges. Come on, he'll face a fair trial before he's put away for life. As Cup Week draws to a close, is anyone prepared to bet that a real war criminal will ever be charged for just doing their job? After all, killing people is their job. Meanwhile, killing mortgagees, metaphorically, another interest rate hike, which for the good of the country will lead to lots more unemployed whom reserve losses bank supremo Michelle Bulldust knows is for their own good. But those who feel the extra payments might make life a little more difficult stretch the budget wrong. Worse packed bank supremo Peter King hit the customers announced that borrowers can cope with rate rises. For instance, if I had a mortgage, I have no doubt I could cope with the rate increases. Peter made borrowers feel so much better. Sure, the big supremos of all our great corporate citizens could cope. Well spotted, Peter. Although if some borrowers do find making ends meet a touch difficult, we may have a solution. Warren Buffett, the US of the UN of the US of the world big, big investor, announced he has $241 billion, real figure, to invest. Making money work, he said. While he makes a fortune doing no work. Well, the workers of the companies in which he invests are doing the work and making Warren a fortune. But given Warren is obviously a warm, caring, empathetic, filthy rich of the filthy rich, we recommend those having a bit of trouble with the mortgage repayments give him a ring, pop a note to Warren and ask for a little help from his $241 billion. He'd be glad to offer a helping hand. Oh, and by the way, in declaring borrowers could cope, Peter King hit the customers announced a 26% profit increase of $7.2 And worse, pack and the other struggling banks will continue and certainly be able to cope. They'll make even more money. And the caring business class party shadow minister for capitalism, Jane Hume, damn the left, said those who couldn't cope couldn't cope thanks to the socialist government. Asked why rates were rising and people couldn't cope when her lot was with the government, Jane pointed out those problems had nothing to do with the government and were down to international issues. Whereas the international issues, ignorant economists blame for the current problems, are not international issues, but simply socialist mismanagement. But then in a complete surprise, Jane advocated 
the end of capitalism. Get rid of it. The government is dealing, she said, with the symptoms but not the cause. She couldn't have been clearer. Good on you, Jane. More importantly, big economic guru Jim Chalmers' capital made anyone not coping, despite their bank's assurances, feel so much better by declaring yet again he knows people are doing it tough. And he would love to help them, but knows that if he does something to help them, that will make life worse for them. The intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy. Epitomised in the problems facing Stevedore DP World for Dud the Public. Facing industrial action by the evil unions with delays and even goods ending up in the wrong ports. All because the greedy workers want a pay rise when the company is happy to offer an agreement in which they won't be worse off. What could be fairer? And this is where the intricacies of the delicate flower come in. At the same time, Dud the public world is increasing its charges to its own customers by 52% to $191 per container, prompting even prominent exponent of the greatest little economic order, Graham Slamuel, to criticise the light-touch regulation of stevedores and even suggests the privatisation of most true blue container ports has created rampant high prices. A very unfair criticism because the still publicly owned Fremantle port charges $50, showing private sector efficiency costs almost 400% extra, a small price to pay for efficiency. And all the more reason why Dud the public world can't afford the outrageous demands of its greedy, greedy workforce. Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head informed us big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi hadn't taken his orders from Washington not to believe anything evil China says seriously enough, becoming a naive victim of communist propaganda, leading us to wish bolt through would fill us in on which bit of the Chinese economy is, uh, is communist. Anthony landed home from China, wandered across the tarmac and took off to the Pacific Islands Forum where he said all the island states loved what Trublawazi is doing to facilitate their disappearance into the briny. Yet despite that, Germany's envoy on climate change came here and said we should join the European nations in calling for a total end to fossils at the next COP that conference coming up shortly. We do not have the time anymore to go slowly, she said, and did seem a touch concerned that Trublawazi still approved new fossils and expanded fossil exports. On behalf of all Trublawazis, let's say what right has she to come here and meddle in matters that are none of her business. For instance, in a takeover bid for great corporate citizen origin fossils, one bidder described it as a fossil fuel cash box. Does she and those Pacific nations, which may be a bit sceptical, want to deny those shareholders of their rights? Finally, we can dismiss any criticism from those Pacific Island states, because they're not going to be around much longer anyway. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Thank you very much, Kevin Healy. Uh, There's... uh, he mentioned that the uh, court proceedings against David uh, McBride 
starts on Monday, the whistleblower. You'll remember he was the ADF lawyer who revealed extrajudicial killings by Australian forces in Afghanistan, which led to the Brereton inquiry that agreed, yes, certain individuals had indeed operated a cabal of secrecy, which included murdering prisoners. And uh, so uh, there was a really fascinating webinar put on by the Australian Institute, uh, Truth on Trial, and it was uh, had a variety of people speaking. Uh, but I've taken uh, Kieran Appender's piece, a bit of him speaking. He's from the Human Rights Legal Centre. He's the senior lawyer there. And um, he had uh, this to say about uh, what's going on, why it's important and why people should be aware of what's going on. Uh, of course, you can hear the full webinar, which is an hour long, on the Australia Institute website. This is just, as I said, a small piece to give you an idea of what's, why it's important. This is a hugely significant case that should concern all Australians um, because of the core of it, which relates to someone giving information allegedly in the public domain that was subsequently reported, which was some of the early significant reporting about Australia's uh, misconduct, did war crimes committed in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, subsequently, since that reporting in 2017 by the ABC, we've had the Brereton Inquiry, we've had the Ben Robert Smith Federal Court Judgment that's provided a lot of additional detail that some of the earliest reporting, in addition to other reporting done by the likes of Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters and so on, was done by the ABC uh, with the Afghan files, which is alleged to have been leaked to the ABC by Dave McBride, uh, and he is being prosecuted for that. The prosecution comes at a time against a wider backdrop of attacks on whistleblowers in Australia. We saw Bernard Kaliri and Witness K prosecuted for exposing Australia's espionage against Timor-Leste in the mid-2000s. Witness K was given a suspended sentence. Uh, Bernard Kaliri pleaded not guilty and ultimately the Federal Attorney-General dropped that case last year. There's another whistleblower currently being prosecuted, Richard Boyle, who exposed wrongdoing at the tax office. And then the David McBride case, most prominently, uh, starting on Monday. These cases raise fundamental questions about democracy, transparency and accountability in Australia when the people on trial are those who have sought to speak truth to power, help expose wrongdoing and made Australia a better place as a result. We are all better off because we know about what's been done in our name and we can demand accountability and we can demand justice but why is it that it's the people who've done that, who've helped us understand what's going on, who've helped bring transparency and sunlight, why is it they who are on trial, not the wrongdoers? Just the wider context is that federal whistleblowing law says that you can speak up about wrongdoing, you can speak up internally first, you can speak up to oversight bodies, and as a last resort or in certain emergency circumstances, you can go straight to the public or after you've tried to speak up internally and to regulators, you can go to the public. And if you do all of that, you're both um, protected from prosecution, from lawsuit, from losing your job. And if you do suffer negative consequences, you can sue for compensation. That's what the law says on paper. Unfortunately, the law, the federal whistleblowing law is full of loopholes and inconsistencies. It's overly technical. It's overly complex. The federal government admits the law is broken. The Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus KC, who 
introduced the law a decade ago when he was last Attorney General has said that he recognises it's not working and it needs to be fixed. Um, unfortunately, we have these two cases where people thought they were following the law and now they find themselves on trial. Um, you'd think that that immunity in federal civil law would prevent these prosecutions. In the case of Richard Boyle, uh, he argued in his defence that he was immune from prosecution and the judge found that the immunity only protected the actual act of blowing the whistle, not relevant prior conduct. So Richard had gathered documents, recorded conversations, etc., to inform his whistleblowing firstly internally, then to the tax ombudsman and then ultimately as a last resort to the ABC and to the Fairfax newspapers. And the judge said the immunity only protected the actual whistleblowing, not things that were necessary to blow the whistle. Um, he appealed. That appeal is pending. The Human Rights Law Centre intervened in that appeal. We'll get a judgment uh, soon. In David McBride's case, he also argued he was protected by whistleblowing law. That was due to be heard last October on the eve of that trial beginning, the federal government made a national security claim over key documents that meant that he was forced to withdraw his defence. That was a really extraordinary thing to happen because secrecy laws already protected that case. So if the government wanted key documents heard in secret, they could have done that. Instead, they prevented McBride from using them entirely. He had to withdraw his case. That means that he goes on trial on Monday without access to a whistleblowing defence. Both of those situations are extraordinary, but I think if we can zoom out to the wider backdrop, prosecutions happen because the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions thinks they have reasonable prospects of securing a conviction and because they think it's in the public interest. We have consistently said it's not in the public interest to prosecute whistleblowers, and it's particularly extraordinary in the present case because the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, um, so, you know, as people will remember, in 2019, the ABC were raided by the federal police in relation to this story. So the raid was in relation to the Afghan files reporting. The Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions reviewed the brief the police put together and said, we could secure a conviction of the journalist, but we don't think it's in the public interest to do so. Now, that was, of course, self-evidently the right decision. Um, the ABC shouldn't have been raided in the first place, but it's very fortunate that the police and the prosecution didn't proceed with the case against the journalist. But if it's not in the public interest to prosecute journalists, how is it in the public interest to prosecute whistleblowers? David McBride's lawyers yesterday, the day before, posted on Twitter a letter that they'd received from the Attorney-General in response to a request from the lawyers asking for the government to intervene. So under law, um, there are two people who can stop a prosecution, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions or the Attorney General. Um, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions has shown no sign of stopping this. Um, there's been a significant number of requests, including from groups like Rexon, uh, myself, uh, Seeking, and, and Ruan, and indeed Hattie, and, and we were all in Canberra uh, advocating for this last month. Um, uh, the government has resisted those requests and formally declined to intervene in response to that letter. Um, so it's Friday. David McBride's trial starts on Monday. Um, there is, unfortunately, at the moment, no sign that that will change. So as things stand, David McBride's trial will begin on Monday 
Um, I understand there'll be a few days of preliminary legal argument followed by a jury being impaneled later in the week. And um, then that's scheduled to run for a number of weeks. Um, for those based in Canberra, uh, there's a rally outside the court, um, sort of starting from 8am with speeches at 9am. The trial starts at 10am. Um, I, I just do want to underscore, you know, I know it's sort of, a lot of people have said it and in some ways it's becoming a bit trite to say, but it just, again, I find astounding that the first person on trial in relation to the horrific conduct that Rowan and, and, and Hattie and Shara have, have discussed, you know, I think one of the reasons we were keen to have this, this webinar and have this sort of blended focus of the war crimes and the whistleblowing is because we can't lose sight of the underlying wrongdoing. Like th that's what matters here. You know, David McBride helped expose it and his case is profoundly unjust. But what is even more unjust is the fact that we are focusing not on addressing the wrongdoing. And Rowan and Hadi have talked many times about the, the, the delays in accountability. The Brereton Report had all of these recommendations, some of which have been delayed, some of which, um, you know, issues of compensation and redress the government is sort of bl blaming on the Taliban's takeover, but there are other ways it should be being pursued, which it isn't. But on Monday, the person on trial is the person who is alleged to have exposed the documents to the ABC, not any of the people who have alleged to have committed the war crimes. And that is not good for our country. It's not good for our democracy. It's not good for accountability and transparency in Australia. Um, but as things stand, it is going to happen. And that was Kieran Pinder from the Human Rights Legal Centre. He was part of a webinar from the Australia Institute. You can get the full webinar from their website. Uh, and uh, it, he was talking about David McBride, the ADF lawyer who revealed extrajudicial killings by Australian forces in Afghanistan. You're with Annie on Solidary Breakfast. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming to the end of the program but we're going to go out with a piece that was uh, sent to me by Vivian Langford, uh, my uh, fellow broadcaster on 3CR. She normally deals with uh, uh, the environment, which is the ultimate human right, but um, uh, today uh, she has been uh, covering the Palestinian events going on in Sydney and this is from the uh, 10,000 strong rally that was held last uh, weekend in Sydney. Uh, we'll hear some various voices from that particular rally. 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الصلاة الفلاح حي على الفلاح الله أكبر الله أكبر We will not forget 
we will not forget the young boy as he calls out to his father, Yaba, Yaba, Yaba. We will not forget the curly-haired Yusuf. We will not forget the heroic journalist, Mu'taz, as he saved children who were being bombarded by the Israeli occupation. We will not forget the collective punishment and the mass murder of innocent Palestinians in the Jalabiya refugee camp or the Shiva hospital. We will not forget because this is what we are living now as we're standing here. A genocide is happening and we will not be silent. Next speaker um, knows all about the uh, evil system that is part uh, of the story of Israel's crimes against the Palestinians. His name is Anthony Lowenstein. He's an anti-Zionist, Jewish activist and author, an independent journalist. He was based in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020. Uh, he's a courageous guy. He's faced a lot of flack from the Zionist uh, community here. Um, he's written uh, many books about the subject standing with the Palestinians. His most recent is called The Palestine Laboratory. I very much encourage everyone to go out and grab, grab a copy. It tells you about the evil system uh, that puts profits and power before the lives of the Palestinians. So please welcome Anthony Lowenstein. Thank you so much. I wanted to start off by acknowledging traditional owners of the land upon which we are standing and gathering here today and paying my respects. I am honoured to be here as a proud, critical, dissident Jew. And it's important to say that because in so much of the media and political class, it's presumed that the Jewish community is united on this issue. It is not true. It is not true. For years and years and years, the Jewish community claims to speak with one voice on Palestine, defending occupation, defending war crimes in Gaza. It is not true. In the last four weeks, we have seen across the world, including in Sydney, Melbourne, London, New York and elsewhere, large numbers of Jews protesting, saying, not in my name, calling for a ceasefire. These kinds of voices are so important because the Jewish community establishment does not want those voices to be heard. It does not want those voices to be heard. You know, I've been visiting Gaza as a journalist since 2009. Spent time there as a journalist, speaking to locals. And what's so missed by so much of the media of this issue is the humanity of Palestinians. It's an obvious thing to say, but so much of our media class, even these last four weeks, spend so much time demonizing Palestinians, demonizing those in Gaza. It's an outrageous slur against millions of Palestinians. And it should not be hard, and I say this to my fellow journalists in the media, I am a journalist and a lot of media may be here, it should not be hard to humanize Palestinians. It should not be hard to do so. Palestinians are just as diverse as the Jewish community. There's a range of voices in humanity. Their voices must be heard. Let's talk a little bit about the role of Australia because Australia's role in this 
war crime is so clear. I'm the co-founder of an organization called Declassified Australia. And just last night we published a story which shows that the US intelligence base at Pine Gap, it's near Alice Springs, is directly involved in providing intelligence to Israel in its targeting in Gaza right now. This story came out 24 hours ago and it's gone viral. And there's a reason for that because people in Australia and globally need to be aware of what our own government is doing. When you have Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong giving platitudes about human rights, they are deeply complicit in this problem. Deeply complicit. What should happen now is clear. Ceasefire is just the beginning. Just the beginning. It's important, but it's just the beginning. And it's the beginning because the siege on Gaza must end. Must end. The siege on Gaza is imposed by Israel and Egypt. Let's not forget the role of the Egyptian regime here as well. Israel and Egypt, both of them. And finally, Josh touched on this as well. The role of Israel paying a political and diplomatic price for its crimes is key. Boycott, divestment, sanction is what needs to happen, far more than now. Pressure on Israeli companies tied to the Israeli state. As Josh mentioned, my recent book talks about the Israeli arms industry, the 10th biggest in the world. And all these weapons and arms are currently being battle-tested, that's their word, not mine, in Gaza right now. These are the kinds of companies, Elbert amongst others, that must be targeted and boycott legitimately. They are in Australia and other countries right now. Let me finish with this. It's inspiring for me to see so many people here today and so many people around the world, including the Jewish community that says, not in my name, free Palestine. Thank you. We have not been patient for 75 years to now give up. We Palestinians never knew what giving up is. We are the children of the ancestors. We are the children where the olive oil runs through our veins, where the olive oil runs through our heart. We are one. We are the children where the voices of our ancestors are imprinted in our hearts. And there is no time to stop. There is only one way forward. And this is to a ceasefire and to a free Palestine. And I will say that Mahmoud Darwish, who wrote about the love of Palestine, he said, Nahnu ahya wa baqiyun wal hilmu baqiyya. We are alive and persistent and the dream has not ended. And I will say as we prepare ourselves to march that our dream for a free Palestine, our dream for a free Gaza will come one day and you will say, Asala 
amongst millions of people in this world said it, that there will be a free Palestine. What do you want? When do you want it? What do you want? What do you want? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.